Well, hello and welcome to episode three, season two, Theology on Tap. My name is Seth Mormon. I'm going to be your host tonight. Joining me in the room, I've got Kaylee Lopez. Hi, everybody. And Mark Siegert. Hello, everyone. And joining us remotely, we got Kyle Blake. Oh, yeah, he's, he's eating. Never mind. I don't want to go back to him. Anyways, thank you guys I'm for here. taking the time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to listen. Um, again, we're not having a Zoom audience this season, but we do want to hear from you. So feel free to send us an email, theologyontap1517 at gmail.com. That's also going to be in the show notes. You can uh, connect with us there or also on our Facebook page. There's a link to that Facebook page in the show notes right at the bottom of it as well. This season on Theology on Tap, we're talking about how God makes himself known to the world. And we've talked about his incarnation, that's his coming in the flesh, how he manifests himself today through word and sacrament and through his people. And we started talking about that idea of of revelation, not the book of the Bible, but the idea of how God reveals himself to us. Uh, And we talked kind of generally about the Bible last week. And today we're going to get a lot more specific with the scriptures themselves. I'm going to tell you right now, warning to our affiliates, we might be going long, um, so it might be a little bit longer than our usual 40, 45 minutes. So grab yourself a cold beer, warm glass of milk, hot cup of tea, bottle of water, whatever you'd like, pull up a chair, and join us as we chat. Now, before I throw it to Mark to get us started, I thought, if it's okay with you guys, I'd like to do some listener emails. Oh, please. That that sounds fun. Sounds good. Yeah, we got a couple of great listener emails. First, uh, listener Pat says, friends, I'm glad you're back. Now I'm going to have to watch The Mandalorian. (laughs) Nice. Keep on manifesting. Uh, That's from last week's, or two weeks ago uh, episode. Uh, So I sent uh, him an email back and all I said was, this is the way. (laughs) (laughs) Now we have another fan. Right. Uh, Second email I want to share with you is from Christina. And she says, dear Theology on Tap team, I am Christina from India. India. Yeah, India. I came across your podcast on Spotify, and I was interested to know more about your discussions and what topics do you usually discuss. I also noticed you have a live Zoom session. Is this open for all? I'm currently studying theology in seminary, and I have been looking forward to plugging myself into some theology discussions for a while now. Please let me know, and I look forward to hearing from you. Wow, that's awesome. Pretty awesome. Well, thanks I, for reaching out to us. I, and I responded back to Christina, and I said, hey, if we ever do a live Zoom again, I'll, you'll get the link, but just keep on downloading. And if you have some ideas, something you're studying in theology, you want uh, us to maybe talk about it, send it our way. Yeah, So definitely. if you've got some uh, some thoughts, some questions, uh, comments, um, positive or negative, whatever, negative ones probably won't get read. But, uh, <laughs> Let's be um, honest. I mean, I'll read them, but maybe not on the air. Um, but uh, feel free to, to send us uh, an email, theologyontap1517 at gmail.com. Kyle, were you going to say something there, buddy? I, 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 used to, I used to have a teacher that would, uh, Dirk Kimnitz, Mr. Kimnitz, used to say, um, questions, comments, snide remarks. Okay, let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. I love it. All right. So uh, without further ado, let's get back uh, into uh, our topic for tonight. So Mark, get us started. Okay. Well, thanks, Seth. And it's good to be back here for this episode. And it's, it's as Seth said, it's a big episode, right? Our, our topics tonight are listed as Bible translations and the canon. And so I'm going to actually start with the canon and move backward, if you will, then into translations. But actually, I'm going to start tonight with another poem. Uh, this Ooh, time, this time a I short poem and has nothing to do with any television show. It's just a poem that I wrote that I think is, uh, sums up our discussions from last week about the Bible. So uh, uh, a brief poem about the Bible. God speaks to people 
who he is and how much he loves his people. Good news. Now, if you remember your introductory class in poetry, you probably recognize that that is a haiku. Haiku, poem. I thought, yeah, all right. It's a, it's a structure of poetry originating in Japan, short poems with only three lines. The first line and the third line have five syllables. The middle line has seven syllables. So with that haiku describing the Bible, let's get down to our discussion of canon. Now, technically, that word canon is not a, a, a pirate's weapon of mass destruction. Boom. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, it, is, it is a word that actually kind of has two meanings. First off, it refers to a set of rules or a set of measurements, if you will, which determines if some object is judged to be authentic. And then it also refers to the collection of objects that have been judged to be authentic. And so that's kind of a vague definition, but maybe some examples will help. Um, I'm going to start with John Lennon. I think oh, all, all right. of our listeners, uh, or at least most of our listeners, are familiar with John Lennon, um, a songwriter that was originally part of the Beatles and contributed a lot of songs to, to the Beatles albums. And then also then when the Beatles broke up, he continued to write a lo lot of songs on his own. So those songs that he wrote are part of the John Lennon canon, right? But now here's a, a, a fictitious scenario. Um, let's say somebody in Japan uh, claims to have discovered uh, a document that looks like it's a John Lennon song, something that's never been published before, never been recorded, never been released. Um, that would be really interesting, particularly to, to John Lennon fans. Um, and we might ask ourselves, how do we know if this is really an authentic John Lennon song? Well, he lived in Japan for quite a while, so that mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, learned something new today. Yeah, I did. <laughs> he lived in Japan for quite a while, um, and so all right, that part makes sense. So we might look at this and say, look, if it was written back then, it was probably written in his own hand. So we can kind of compare it to some other things and see if it matches the handwriting. And then we might look at the lyrics, right, and say, is this something John Lennon would write? So if we looked at the lyrics and determined that this is just some sappy, silly little love song. We might go, that's really probably not what John Lennon wrote. John Lennon didn't write silly love songs. That was uh, Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney's <laughs> yeah. job, right, yeah, exactly. to write the silly love songs. Um, so that's how we would, you know, that's kind of the, the collection and how we determine what belongs in the collection. And then, of course, you can't really talk about this without mentioning Star Wars fans Absolutely. Who, are, who are very familiar with that, that phrase. It. Yeah, it had <laughs> to be there. Um, and they will say often, star, you know, legit Star Wars fans will say, the books are not canon. And really what they mean by that is if you, you want to know the authentic, true story of the Skywalkers and Jedi and, and how all that interacted, you can't look at the books. They, don't, they, don't, they aren't the measure or the rule of what the true story is. The canon is the movies. Yeah. Um, and then, sadly, back to my poem. Is it really appropriate to include that as haiku? Is it really appropriate to call that poem or to include that poem in the world's haiku canon? And... It turns out it's not. Doesn't a haiku have to be about nature? It's supposed to be about nature, but even then it has to have a certain kind of technical words mm. that in the English language we really don't have. So I emailed my friend in Japan and I said, you know, without those words, is it really haiku? And it's not. Huh. So um, Throw it out. It's not part of canon. Yeah, it's not, it's not it's haiku not canon. canon. Um, but then, see, the, you get the idea already. So mm -hmm. you understand it's the collection and the rules that, that allow it to be included. Uh, hi in haiku Canon, that's a good band name. <laughs> i got to <laughs> yeah, write that one haiku down. Haiku Canon. And it's, that's our discussion at hand then. The collection of books in the Bible, the New and the Old Testament, and then the rules that may have been applied to include them in that authentic collection of divinely inspired Word of God. Because that's what we said last week, is that's what the Bible is. The Word of God 
to his people. So what are the rules that might have been applied to, to determine that? And that is a really good topic because we're dealing with the Word of God, but it's also, unfortunately, very, very complex. So let's just jump into it in the Old Testament first. And full disclosure, there's really no single authoritative written list of rules which were used to determine what documents are indeed divinely inspired, at least no, nothing that I've ever come across. So there's no canon about the canon? No, no, there's no, right. there's no official list. What we do have is a very long series of discussions and debates, and I'm talking very long, hundreds if not thousands of years, debates among Jewish scholars, Hebrew scholars, and then a, a series of events in Jewish history uh, which kind of give us a canonization process. And for our purposes tonight, I want to highlight one significant development in that canonization process of the Old Testament, and that's something called the Septuagint. And so, Seth, I'm going to throw you on the spot here a little oh bit. Oh, my gosh. In, right. a sentence, in a sentence, what is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. Right. Right. Thank you. Going one concise sentence. That's hard to get out of a pastor sometimes. But there <laughs> so you go. true. <laughs> um, a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, which was produced by Jewish scholars for the Jewish community. It was all completed about 100 years before Jesus was even born. Uh, and so basically what we have in that Jewish canon then is something that is a very, very helpful sort of benchmark because it gives us at least a strong indicator of which documents the Jewish people considered to be the word of God. Now, there are some things in the Septuagint that are still sort of controversial, if you will, but, it's, but that Septuagint was a nice benchmark, and it was widely used then by the early Christians as a sort of a reference point. And then the canonization of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, but the Jewish people might refer to it as the Tanakh or something else, those Jewish scriptures in that canon, it continued for at least two or three more centuries after the Septuagint was finished. And in fact, the, con the discussions continue today about, about all that. So it's not all set yet exactly, at least not in everybody's mind. It, it is in my mind, but not in everybody else's mind. So make a, just a quick point. I don't mean to, to, to belabor it, but this is before Christ. Right. This was kind of right. c codified and, and canonized. Right, right. Okay. So I that, just want to make sure that everybody heard that. Right. So the, 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 and that's why it's important, because it was about finished about 100 years before Jesus was born. And again, the Christians sort of latched onto it, rightly so, because this is what the Jewish people had said, this is what we want to pass on. Right. Um, and this is what we want to pass on in a language that our people will understand, because at the time, people were using the Greek language instead of the Hebrew language. So it's, it's an important indicator. Yeah, Greek was the language of, of trade, the language of, of uh, the whole area. That's all goes back to Alexander the Great, and right. maybe we'll get into that later. So the, and the language of the common people, right. if you will. Um, and it was pretty impressive, if, if, if you think about it, that these Hebrew scholars who had for thousands of years insisted on translating it down in, in Hebrew then said, no, we're going to break with that and move into, into, um, into Greek because we want people to hear it. Um, but that's in the translation discussion. I, I digress a little bit. But to the New Testament canonization process, it also is quite complex. And there were, again, many discussions and debates and events which took place over several centuries. Uh, and so I want to highlight, first off, two meetings or, or gatherings of Christian teachers. And these meetings took place very late in the fourth century. Uh, in northern Africa, uh, Christians gathered from really all around Christianity, not just African Christianity, but all around Christianity. They gathered in two different meetings, one in 393 
and one in 397, and this is now after Christ, so we would say A.D. or Common Era, and both of those gatherings put forth a collection of 27 books that should be included in the New Testament. And so there we have in those two meetings, they weren't completely isolated from each other, but they were different, and they came up with this list of 27 books that should be part of the New Testament. So there you go. There's the 27 New Testament books. Around that same time, uh, another um, Bible scholar named Jerome was commissioned to work on a translation of the New and the Old Testament, and he was to put both of those uh, testaments, if you will, into one collection that, that we would call the Bible, and he was translating into Latin. And again, Latin was the language of the day, so we were trying to get the Hebrew and the Greek out of, out of that into the Latin. And he produced something called the Vulgate, and that was finished in the year 405. And uh, again, he used the Septuagint and the Hebrew texts to bring forth the Old Testament, and he used that same collection of 27 books for the New Testament. And so there we have, if you will, the first sort of collection that of the Old and the New Testament all in one place. But the debates and the discussions continue because especially in the Old Testament, there's still some uncertainty among some people uh, about what really should and shouldn't be there. But there's the big picture. Uh, we have finally all of the Old Testament and New Testament books in one place. Now, just regarding the New Testament real quick, there really also isn't a, a complete list, but if you look at what happened in that process, there's at least two rules or, or um, measures that, that definitely ar arose in the discussion. First off, if it was going to be included in the New Testament, the message and teaching of the document at hand had to be consistent with the Old Testament. We don't learn anything new about God or his relationship with people in the New Testament. Um, and also... Um, the documents that were accepted into the canon had to be written in and have their origins in the first century, written by and authored by people who were either eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry in a one-to-one -one basis or at least direct eyewitnesses to the immediate results of Jesus' eye ministry, Got alive in that time and writing in that time. Got it. Now, there are a couple other things that rise out of there, but those are the two important New Testament rules, if you will. All right, that's enough about canon for now. I want to turn our attention to translation discussion for just a few minutes. And as we saw, translations play a major role in the canon process, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so again, we have to have full disclosure when we start talking about translations because translations are now we're going to take it from Latin or Greek or Hebrew and bring it into a target language, English or Japanese or whatever else it might be. And full disclosure, we have no originals of any of the documents of the Old or New Testament remaining. Nothing. Right. So nothing Paul wrote, nothing Isaiah wrote, or, or anything like that. All what we have are copies. Now, the good thing is we have more than 5,000 copies of the New Testament books in Greek. Some of them are complete copies. Some of them are not complete. Some of them are better than others. But nonetheless, 5,000 or 5,000 plus is a very significant number. Mm -hmm. And then in the Old Testament, we have something that we discovered in the... Um, middle of the 20th century called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right, right. And the Dead Sea Scrolls gave us some Old Testament copies that date back to, again, about 100 years before Jesus was even born. So those are very old copies, and that's very helpful. But again, all copies, no originals. So translators then have to use all of their efforts to work from the oldest and the best copies. So they have 
um, what you might call a very scholarly system, and it's not they don't work in isolation. They, they now work globally around the world to work with the best copies in order to produce the best translations into their target language. So then translators along the way have to struggle with word order because the word order in Hebrew and Greek is not the same word order as what might be in the target language, say English. Uh, they have to struggle with readability. If we're going to read the Bible in public, uh, which is a common practice in Christian circles, has been since the beginning, um, is this readable? Um, and then they have to work with um, varying definitions from one language to the next. So the Greek language might have a word that has a very precise definition but in the target language, uh, there's no, no comparable word. You've got other words that are sort of in the same family, and so they have to wrestle with translations or, or definitions and word order, readability, and all that. Um, so what I have here as, as I start to wrap up is um, a word-for-word -word translation from Greek into English of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Okay. I, okay. I figure... You know, that's well known to our Christian listeners. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is, is a fairly well-known verse. Um, but this is from the Greek in the same word order into English. So here we go. In favor for, you are being delivered through trust, and this is not from you, of God the gift, not from works, that not any might brag. <laughs> you sound like a like a, a, a robot learning English that didn't get it done really well. And I was it's, trying to do that. It's, it's it's Yoda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. right, Greek yeah. Yoda yeah. speak. Right. Yeah. Um, the, uh, what, you're, it is. what you're talking about there, um, Kyle, is is um, you, do you put the verb at the beginning or at the end of the sentence? So in English, we tend to put the verb somewhere near the beginning or in the middle. In the Korean language, for example, they are often going to put the verb at the very end. Um, and so, it, like Yoda does, <laughs> Yoda often puts the w puts the verb at the end. There we are. Somehow, we're back on Star Wars. <laughs> um, I love it. So, so translators are re wrestling with this. They they may want to decide that their translation is going to stick to the text, and so they're going to have sort of an odd word order, and they're going to use technical vocabulary, or they might want to emphasize more of a readability, and they might want to use more contemporary. Uh, language and that's a little bit less technical, but then supposedly more easily read and probably more easily understood. And there's all kinds of points in between that, and that's what translators are wrestling with: how to do that and yet still be faithful to the copies that we have. Um, so I have some sample English translations of that same passage, but maybe that'll come in handy later on. Maybe not. I don't know. Point is, I've been talking way too long about all of this. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> we we kind of warned you that that might happen. Fascinating and stuff. And there's tons of things that I, that I left out that ended up, if you will, on the cutting room floor. Um, and so all of this might come to nature or come, come up then as we kind of finish our discussion here with the roundtable. Um, but I think whenever we're done with this episode, before we finish, one of the subjects we really want to talk about is, and we have some other good questions to wrestle with in between, but before we're done, we need to end with a discussion of why any of this is important. It's all been sort of heady, sort of intellectual, almost cold and historical, right, to look at all this stuff. But how does this help us with our discipleship walk? And how does it help us if we're trying to share our faith with people who don't yet know Jesus? I think we have to get to that by the end of our discussion today. So uh, there you go. Uh, to my colleagues and panel, um, what do you think? Uh, what, what are your uh, responses from all of that? <laughs> oh. I'm just saying, dude, Mark, you have succinctly in like 10 minutes 
like talked about stuff that takes, I mean, semesters, years in college, university. You know, I mean, there's degrees in this stuff. Right. And you had to, you had to explain all this stuff in like 10 minutes. So bravo, bravo. <laughs> well, thanks. Or, bravo, I, bravo, bravo. I, you know. I, I missed, I so. missed the 10 minute mark by a good three or four minutes. Whatever. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate you're, it. Thanks. You're good. It, it was good. I mean, it is a big, both of them, canon and translation are two very big topics um, that go hand in hand. And I think um, it's kind of hard to have one discussion without the other one. Well, right, because we're talking about um, a, a document in a language written by people inspired by God. That's kind of last week's stuff right. um, that we believe has ha, has power. What did you say? It was It's performative performative right um it it, it, it is it, it it brings it, it is living and active right it changes our hearts it, right so, you know it tells us the message of salvation uh by christ what he has done for us so, i mean there's so many things and that kind of gets into your your question there and i know we'll kind of wrestle with that maybe a little bit more um but I hear oftentimes from people who kind of discount the scriptures that, you know, well, it's a religious book, so you can just kind of put whatever you want to mm. in there um, and without kind of doing some of the homework of it on the historicity side. I know that's a big word, too, that historians use to kind of look at uh, documents of antiquity, mm-hmm. you know, to say, how do we know things happened in histories? Because we're going to find these documents. We're going to find these historians who wrote these things down. And if you want to take it that out of, of Christianity and, and say this is a, a, I'm sorry, outside of like the realm of, of faith and theology, mm-hmm. and you're going to say this is a, a document of antiquity, using the rules that historians use for all of uh, documents of antiquity, the Bible holds up better than any other document. There are more extant copies. Uh, there are copies that are closer to when they were actually written than lots of other things. I mean, we have a better idea of, of what happens in, in Scripture than we have of, like, did Julius Caesar, was he, you know, murdered? Right. Aren't there there are more historical documents to back up Christ's existence than Caesar's? Correct. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, and that's just the, the you know, the history part of it. And then to, to make the decision on, because on, there are a lot of other religious writings. There's lots of religious writings. But, but why are these the, the scripture? And I think that's the fascinating uh, thing you talked about, Mark, in the idea of canon. Um, and I, I think, you know, when I was in undergrad way back in the, you know, pre-internet days, um, w- w- nobody understood what canon was other than a, a big pirate gun. Um, I think it helps us now talking about the Marvel universe and the Star Wars universe to understand what, to have this discussion of canon and to say what makes it canon. And I think one of the things that, that um, those rules that, that the message for the New Testament, the message and teaching is consistent with the Old Testament. I think that's f- phenomenal. And that it was written in the first century, those eyewitnesses and the, those, first, those first people. You know, there are other documents that have, been argued are are they should they be part of the canon you know there's you've probably heard of you know the 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 gospel of thomas and and all of these other things and and they just don't seem to to hold up under the same historicity the same historical scrutiny um and i want to make a comment about that real quick seth because sometimes when we start to say oh the gospel of thomas and the gospel of peter and stuff like that those are generally fall into a category called 
Gnostic Gospels, um, and the church did not hide those. Right. And stop and say, and say, hey, there's nothing to see here. Look away from those. The church was very aware of those in the canonization process. They simply said, yeah, they don't hold up to the rules. Um, and th- they became, I think, really popular um, in, the, in the movie series. Um, oh, I'm not going to think of the name of the movie. Um, in the early, early 21st century. Oh, that Dan, the Dan Brown. Yeah, yeah, um, the Dan Brown oh, stuff. Oh, those were great books. Yeah. Uh, Angels, and Demons, Angels and Demons and um, Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci yeah. Code is the one that really yeah. brought all that to the forefront. And suddenly it seemed like the church was going, oh. Like we were how, ashamed or yeah, hiding how or come, something. How come you guys didn't tell us about this? What are you hiding? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, we're, we're not hiding them. We knew about them. Um, we just, they, they don't, they aren't included in the canon. And primarily because, A, their message is really inconsistent with, with the, the messages that were written in the first century, people were there, you know. <laughs> well, and 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 let's let let's use. I'm going to go back to Star Wars again, okay. and and uh, and just think about. There are some big Star Wars fans who want to say that the the last three movies should not be part of canon. I be- agree. Because because they have uh, some of the characters are not acting the way in which they. They would, should. They, they should, in which they had they been have. set up before. So you ha- you have these rules to say, you know, within this 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 uh, galaxy far, far this away. This is not how Jedi act. What are you doing? Well, right. This is not consistent with how Luke this Skywalker. This is not how the Force behaves. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. And I, no, no. I think, I mean, you can be passionate about that, but I think there, there's a lot to, to that when you start thinking canon. And these were even on a much higher level, some mm-hmm. of the discussions that were happening with the Old Testament canonization and with the New Testament canonization. Well, I know there were some, I'm sorry, Kyle, I know I cut you off. I know there were some that we chose, we chose, I meant like I was there, uh, that <laughs> they weren't put in canon because uh, what was written in that book did not necessarily fulfill the prophecies that were written about Christ. And so it goes to what you said, like, you know, Jesus took a hard left all of a sudden and was <laughs> acting in he a He got manner. married. Yeah, no, right? no, he didn't. You know. yeah. Kyle, go ahead. Well, a couple of things. The, our listeners need to know that I'm on Zoom right now, and so that's why it's like it might be choppy. Um, I'm the designated survivor out in Never Never Land. So if I'm <laughs> jumping in, you hear somebody talking over That's what it is. So with all that being said, then you have the Apocrypha. Right. You know, because if you're if you open up a Catholic Bible, now, now you've got you know these Maccabees and all these other things, but in other denominations you don't have. You know, and so it's like, so what do you do with those? And you know, and, and understanding that they they fell in some rules, but they didn't fall in all the rules. Right. Right, and and like I said, there are still these ongoing discussions, particularly about the Old Testament, and it's they often center around those books that we call the apocryphal books. Some people think they are canonical. Some people think they are deuteral canonical, which simply means they're sort of secondarily canonical. Uh, and some people say, well, they're not even that, but they're worth reading. I would say that that um, if you're a Christian, it's worth reading those apocryphal books. And, you know, there there is, I mean, if you're a big, you know, Lutheran, you know, all, you're only going to read something that comes out of the Lutheran church, uh, whatever. There's actually a, a Lutheran church apocryphal uh, book a collection, right. a collection, a, a study guide with it, so you can uh, look through it. And, and let's let's be honest too. When we're talking about um, you know some of the the New Testament books, some of them were spoken against, right. like they should not be included. And there's a big word, the anti-legomena, right. uh, about that. You know, like like the book of Hebrews, 
you know, is one of those because we don't really know exactly who the author is. Right, right. So we're back into that rule of it's supposed to be written by somebody in the first century, but we don't know who wrote this at all. So does it yeah. fit? And some people say, that, well, this sounds like Paul. This is Pauline stuff. But maybe, you know, others say, well, it's definitely not. And who can it be? And depends on who you talk to. There's, you know, three or four or five different possibilities. And I think... Uh, the Christian church has been very open about that. Mm-hmm. And I think some people see that and they start going, aha, I gotcha. You know, you have a book in there that not everybody agrees should be in there. Mm-hmm. I, I think when you start talking about this idea of, of translation, I think if you've never studied a foreign language, um, it, it, it's, it's harder for you to kind of understand the struggle of translation. There's a great uh, video, and I'll try to find it and, and put it in the show notes, that talks about uh, the, the, the task of translating at the United Nations mm-hmm. and the, how hard these translators have to work to try to translate whoever is speaking into whatever language that they are working in. And there's hundreds of these translators. And it is so, so taxing and time-consuming, they only work for 20 minutes at a time. Really? Yeah. And then they have, or it might be 30 minutes, but it's like 20 or 30 minutes. And then they have to change out because they're so mentally exhausted. Right. Because they have to be listening in one language and then translating in their head and then saying it in, in another. real time. Yeah. In real time. It's and well it's, done. And it's technical, diplomatic mm-hmm. language. And right. so you have to get all the nuances in there. Right, <laughs> and the so, right and so this video, and, and, and I'll find it and I'll put it in there, that, that the thought of, of how do you translate a word where it, that's coming out of one language and there is no parallel? We call them a cognate. There's no cognate in the the, the language that the target language. Right. You know. I mean, we the, the big famous one uh, when you're talking Greek is the word love. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we which, can which form is he using? Yeah. Well, yeah, and we can say in English, you know, I I love Oreo cookies and I love my wife use the same word, but you don't truly love those the same way. If you do, there's a problem, <laughs> right? Well, maybe, I don't maybe. know. <laughs> <laughs> Oreos are really good. Um, but, you know, th- this idea, in Greek, there's these shades of language or, and uh, of definitions. You know, there's four different words for love. Three of them are used uh, primarily in the, in the Greek New Testament and even in the Septuagint as well. And... Um, what are you talking about? That that exchange between Jesus and Peter, you know. Uh, do you uh, love me? Do you love me? You know, he's talking, first of all, you know, he's talking to euphilia, you know, that, that, that brotherly love. And then he ends up, you know, agape, starting that, that love. And, and it, it's that you lose that completely when it comes into English. Mm-hmm. And people have put everything into an English translation without maybe looking at an original language. And um, that was one of the issues uh, in, in the Reformation, because in the Vulgate, the Latin version, there was issues in translation. Right. You know, not looking back at what the Hebrew said or what the what the um, you know the, the the Greek said, but only looking at the Latin. Right. Um, with that, um, I want to ask a sort of a, a lighter-hearted question that'll sort of I think demonstrate. Seth, what you've been talking about. I'm going around the room here. Maybe, Kyle, you can go first. What's your favorite English translation right now? That's a great question. I grew up on the NIV 84, okay. which that copyright ended, and so now they have NIV, which has more gender-inclusive language. Uh, and so I'm very familiar with that one. 
I enjoy studying personally out of the ESV, um, the English Standard Version. However, uh, to use in ministry, I really like the New Living Translation because it's written more to, at about a sixth to eighth grade level. And depending on the groups of people I'm working with, uh, their readership may not be where the ESV is written at like a, you know, 10th and above grade level, uh, depending on where you read, uh, you know, what they say. So I like certain translations and I really, I personally like the message as well. And I know some people really don't like that because that's more of a paraphrase right. of a translation. Um, but I had a professor who was like, Hey, the gospel still preached to the message. So if it makes sense for people use it. So I try to use, uh, I, my favorite, I guess, like I said, I have a lot of favorites, but my favorite to use for ministry is probably the new living translation. Cause it is the easiest to understand in the groups of people that, uh, that I work with. And still stays as close as possible to the original text, unlike the message, which then starts to move further away from the text. And that's why some people are uncomfortable with it. And I'm not speaking for or against it. I'm just saying that's, that's the difference as you're going down that spectrum. So Seth, what do you think? What's your favorite? Well, I mean, Back in elementary school, it was the Revised Standard Version. Okay. That was what was You're the old man. The old, I know, <laughs> I know. The old um, uh, Luther Small Catechism, the the old, the dark blue one, dark blue. was all Revised Standard Version. But um, probably about um, seventh or eighth grade, so this is early eighties. They they made a big switch to. Well, I guess it was 84. It was NIV 84 when that came out. <laughs> and Shocker. like everything switched to NIV 84. So most of my my studying in the scriptures is all done in NIV 84. I have one on my desk. I use it a lot because I have so many notes in it. Mm-hmm. So part, part of it is the translation mark, but I'll also answer that. That part of it is that particular book has so many of my notes mm-hmm. and my thoughts. Um, I used it during seminary, so it's got all sorts of Greek scribbles uh, in it and all sorts of things, so I'll go back to it. Um, uh, I like the English Standard Version for studying. I'm kind of like Kyle with that, um, but I think I always default to, to NIV 84, and it's, and it's tough for me since they pulled the copyright. You can't really, you know, really legally use that uh, in a lot of ways. We had to change here congregationally from using the NIV 84, and we use the God's Word translation. Um, what about you, Kaylee? What's, what are your go-tos? Um, oh, what's your go-to? Let's try to narrow it to one. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine. Um, my go-to is the ESV, um, and mainly, and correct me if I'm wrong, so when I was in college, I'm fairly certain the ESV was the closest to the original text at that time. Now I know we have a new one. I think it's probably revised something. Um, but going through my theology classes and learning the Greek, it was easy for me to see and understand kind of how you read that that Bible verse. It was just so wonky the way right. it was laid out. It was easy for me to understand the Greek when I was looking at the English written in such, it, it's written differently. Um, so that's my favorite to read, to study. Um I use it with my kids, the young, young ones. I use NIV just because it's easy for them. Right. But, yeah. It, NIV seems to kind of hit a sweet spot in the English language right now mm-hmm. um, in, in that it's close enough to the original and yet readable and understandable. And it kind of, kind of for us in English, hits that sweet spot. I don't know what the other languages might, what versions they might like. Right. Um, I have a Korean Bible that I sometimes use in parallel, but I can't, I don't know Korean well enough to know if, if it's, 
how, how well it's liked. But uh, it's always interesting to see that and, and why. You're, and you're right, Kyle, you kind of started it. It depends on what my favorite translation is depends on what i'm doing with it right well yeah. what's your what's your favorite um i'm i'm like the rest of us here i i would cut my teeth on niv 84 um but i do i still like esv uh, it's readable enough if i if i'm going to read it in public and i re- practice reading it a couple times it's readable enough to where if i can put some inflection into it as i read it i think i uh, um i think i can still use it um and yet it's still close to uh, the original text. I don't dislike things like the message uh, or New Living Translation, um, but especially when I'm studying and preparing for Bible studies or sermons or something, I still want to stay as close as I can to the original language. Yeah, I've, I fall into kind of the camp of what you said, like the message, and then there's um, the, oh, the Hawaiian language. What's that one? The pigeon? Yeah, th- they have the pigeon one. They have yep. the message. They have the s- there, there was a there was a 70s one too like yeah. a hippie version and as well. <laughs> hippie is much better than the word I was trying to <laughs> not say. <laughs> um but the I struggle with those and I'm uncomfortable with those because for me I feel that they're paraphrasing scripture and the way I think is what it was called. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, yeah. and they're taking, you know, we're already we're coming from Greek, we're coming from Hebrew and we all just heard you, Mark, when you're reading. It's already kind of weird when you're trying to translate from Greek to Hebrew um, and into English, but then to paraphrase that, I think you can lose some of the sweetness, some of the meaning, some of the depth. And unless somebody is there with you, working through that with you, explaining that, I, I get a little uncomfortable because I don't want to lose some of that beauty to a paraphrase. And, and I agree with you, Kaylee, uh, wholeheartedly. Um, and just some of the work that I've done, though, what I've come to realize is, and I know that like working with youth, right? You know, like the word propitiation is in the ESV. Yeah, right. we're going to break that one down. for our sins, right? Right, yeah. But, but you know, so if I'm handing somebody, uh, you know, on the street a Bible and, and like, hey, I want you to read this. And they're reading at like, you know, they quit school at eighth grade right. mm-hmm. and they start reading a certain version that's written at a, you know, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th grade level. You know, that's where I think the struggle is. And, and at the end of the day, like you were saying, like VSV is a lot closer to the Greek, especially than, you know, some of these other translations. But I mean, for a lot of, for, for us, we all have a degree in theology. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're all, so we would all be quote unquote theologians. We're scholars. Yada, yada. And so I think the, the hard part is maybe somebody listening to this is it's kind of like, well, I want to get my friend a Bible mm. and you know, yeah. so all you guys like the ESV and I start reading the ESV and I'm like, yeah. what the heck right. is this yeah. even saying? Right. right. And so I think that that's where the beauty of different translations is finding one that's readable for you mm-hmm. just to get you in the word or finding somebody's readable for the and, and then working with a, a pastor, a youth minister at, uh, in the Lutheran church we call DCEs, uh, you know, um, to help break some stuff down if you have questions. Right. Um, and so, and I think that that's, that's one of the things too, that if we're just going to talk, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say, Hey, ESV all day, but if we're going to be in some of the areas that some of our listeners are living in or might be working with, um, I think they have to realize wh- what is the one that breaks down? I think the danger is, um, when you have some church bodies that are like, this is the only mm-hmm. one you can read. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I mean, what you're saying, Kyle, is, is it's, it's contextual. It, it's all, all about 
who you're talking about and how you're going to talk about it. You know, let me give you a, a contextual example. You know, if you're going to translate parts of, uh, you know, the I am statements uh, of Jesus in John, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, I am the bread of life. You know, if you are going to translate that literally, you're going to go into a culture and you say, well, he is the bread of life. And people are like, I don't really know what this bread is. Yeah. Like bread is not something that, that we have. So, or living water when water is a scarcity. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so how, how do you navigate those, you know, ways translation wise? I mean, I know in, in some ways they, in some cultures, they'll say that, you know, Jesus is the rice of life, mm. you know, which, yeah. but now, but now you do that whole thing. Now you're, you're a way you have made a decision mm-hmm. to not use the word that's in the Bread. scripture yeah so that somebody can understand it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a great thing. I think that's what a, translators have to struggle with. Yeah, that's the, really the struggle, you know. And, and I've heard, you know, that uh, Pastor Jacob, Paul Jacob, who does uh, um, uh, Indian um, uh, ministry to people from India, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, he talks about, you know, naan. You know, Jesus mm. is the naan, you know, that 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 bread of right. life. And... Um, that's where it gets hard. This is this is when I'm going to talk Dr. Middendorf again. I think every episode I end up bringing him up. He always he you know his joke is, uh, what all translators are liars. Yeah, you know that that at, at some point you're not being um, uh, honest to the original text, but you don't have a choice because you don't have a word, and you got to choose a different word you don't have a good choice or the ideal yeah. choice yeah. yeah you don't have you don't have something that, that that's a one for one and, and that's hard that that becomes difficult and there are other subtleties like in greek like if you're if you're asking a question in greek you can you can um say if this is going to be a yes or a no right oh by the like way yeah all the time yeah. Yeah. Is that? yeah rhetorical questions and we can do that in english but when we speak it we put inflection mm-hmm. to decide, you know, of course you know that I mean the answer of this question is yes. Yeah, so when Paul asks, do we continue to sin that grace may abound, he asks it in such a way that we already know that the answer is going to be no. And just in case, he also then provides <laughs> he also that says no. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, know. he doubles down on that one in particular. But there's a whole bunch of other ones where if you just read a direct English translation, you can kind of decide, is it yes, is it no? And you, oh. do, you, know, and you can go one way or the other. And when you really start looking at it, no, the author has already already decided well and i think that too is uh to your point though seth and and an unfortunate thing is kevin's not here this evening um and and he's probably the only one who studied hebrew because we all went to the Mm -hmm. same seminary where we studied greek i had a semester i had a semester i don't okay well so you so maybe you can answer this question oh my gosh no (laughs) well but my understanding is are there verbs in hebrew there's something that's missing in hebrew that we have in english and vowels. so we're almost kind of going to make vowels. a jump in something. Vowels. Well, yeah, vowels. Hey, but, I uh, didn't take Hebrew and I knew that. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. Well, and, you and, know and what? It's, <laughs> it's late. It's been a long day. Well, and and I mean there there's there's lots of issues there in Hebrew because if there are in the in the you know the oldest copies that we have, especially you go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls mm-hmm. as you're looking, there's no vowels in there. Mm-hmm. All those little points and other those little things are they call vowel pointing to help you you know understand what what how to translate it what right. it is but it was just understood in the hebrew where it was the just vowel would right be. it was just understood and they didn't want to add the vowels into the word to change the word so they put them above and below so the word is still the same you just kind of know how 
how to say it. Because nothing should be added or taken away. Right. So adding a vowel might be adding something. So they were very careful about they, that. They were very careful about that. And that's where, you know, there's the, the whole uh, um, mix up with the word um, Jehovah. Oh, right? Jehovah. Yeah. That's you a know. fun, uh, fun lesson. Well, yeah, because because up. you're you know you're you're taking you're taking the consonants of the Hebrew and the vowel pointings of the Septuagint Greek translation of it, and you end up getting Jehovah. Now, if I messed all that up, you good the- Hebrew theologians, you guys can tell me where I messed that up. That, that's okay. I said there's no verbs, so <laughs> I said the. I and, set the bar with and, the mess up. Thanks. And, I, I'm above and, Kyle in that. And part of that, um, there you go. maybe that brings us full circle. I'm not sure. But part of that kind of is where we started. This is a really complicated topic. Right. Uh, like you said, people do degrees on it. People write books about it. Um, it's not anything easy. Um, can I read a quote that I have from F.F. F. Bruce, who is a, um, a, a biblical scholar, uh, lived in the 20th century, uh, well-respected around the globe as a biblical scholar, um, talks a little bit about this canon process. Is it all right if I kind of read yeah, that real quick? Go for yeah, it. Ab- absolutely. He writes this. Um, the New Testament books did not become the authoritative, did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. So let me read that again. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired. Mm. And so what the, what, the mean, what the meetings did then in, in Africa was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but rather to codify what was already the general practice in the communities. And so this, is, this canon <laughs> process that we're talking about is for the church. It's not imposed on the church. It's, it's a gift to the church, if you will. Uh, and the translations are really ought to be, I think, seen as the same thing. It's like we're not imposing something. Uh, we're just simply saying, look, here's our, in your language, the best uh, the best guess. And to go back to your rules of canonization, though, in the first century, I mean, my understanding was that uh, these books had to be used in some of the the writings of those that are, you know, either the disciple, you know, one removed from the disciple or, you know, two removed from the disciple and kind of referenced to some of these letters and such. Um, if they weren't, if they weren't common practice in the church and already used in the church, then they, they weren't really canonical anyway. Right. So if it was a friend of a friend of a friend, that's out. Um, Mark's gospel was a friend of Peter, uh, who traveled with Peter and Paul quite a bit. So right. he was, again, that eyewitness to the events of Jesus, if not an eyewitness to the, the things of Jesus himself. And he had to be that tight on things. Well, yeah, and, and, and Mark, even though he, you're like, well, he wasn't a disciple, you know, but he ended up, you know, this character is is, is made, uh, there's reference in, in Acts, right. you know, about this particular person. So this is somebody who was there. Right. They saw these things, you know. Had to be that way. Um, well, I, I, even the writer of Acts. Right. Even the writer of Acts wasn't. Luke, yeah, yeah, Luke. Yeah. You know, Luke. And, and, and it's interesting because some people would say that where in Luke it says, and Mary pondered all these things in her heart. He knew that because he was talking to Mary to get the first person, you know, uh, what, what really went down. And she's just right. speaking her heart. And so he writes, and she pondered all this stuff in her heart because she's able to tell me this stuff word for word. Now, right. I don't know if that's true or not, but. Uh, well, how, how else would he know it? How else would he know the birth narrative? He wasn't a disciple, but he had seen all of the events that Jesus caused, if you will, 
and his job, his his stated position was to try to write an orderly account of all of it. And so part of that orderly account must have been to talk to Mary. Well, any any good author is going to do that, right? They're going to talk to the eyewitnesses. You know, an author of history is going to talk to the eyewitnesses as best as they can. And, you know, Matthew's gospel reads like, uh, you know, he's writing to the people in the synagogue, you know. Um, we got Luke that we kind of talked about, um, and then there's John, right? (laughs) So, sorry, early, this is, I pulled this up earlier (laughs) this week. Seth sent me uh, a picture um, of the, what was it, the Elton John, right? The Elton John meme that's going around. He is in bright pink peacock feathers and like, you know, his crazy glasses. They're in a car. And there's a gentleman next to him who's just in plain black and he's titled Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then Elton John is titled John (laughs) John. because he is so (laughs) feathery in his writing. And it's just, yeah, it's completely different. I'm over here like giggling to myself and I'm like, he's going to bring it up. He's going to bring it up. We've got, um, we've gotten a little bit on the edge here about interpreting the Bible and I want to talk about that in our next episode. Um, But Kyle, go ahead. Oh no! I I always teach like with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These guys are like ordered, right? So if they're if they're doing vacation pictures, they're like this is day one, this is day two, oh, right. this is day three. John is the guy who like walks in with this big box, dumps it on the table, and goes, "Oh, oh!" And then we did this, and it was so cool. <laughs> Let me tell you what it smelt like, right? That's, a, that's a good like, analogy, Whoa, bro. <laughs> well, and and we learn different things, and this, I mean, this gets into. Um, you know, what do we know about Jesus and his ministry? Mm-hmm. It's from the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the synoptic gospels because they tell a very similar story. Um, you, you see kind of a, a, a great year of ministry that Jesus has. You know, you, you look at John and all of a sudden early in John, they're, 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 they're celebrating the Passover and in the middle of John, they're celebrating the Passover and then they celebrate the Passover again. And you go, hey, well, we got three years out of that. You, you talk to most, you know, uh, uh, kids in confirmation. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You would never get that if you only read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right, right. You yep. only get that out of John. Um, so if it's okay, oh no, it's not. Go, um, Kyle, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I mean, I think we're starting to get off the. We're getting off the rails a little. We bit are. About, You're you know, right. Interpretation and translation and stuff like that. And I think that you know the great thing is is we can talk about this. Um, you know, because we read it in the English language. You know, and and that was the way that we learned it. And so we're talking about you know, what we're laughing about or whatever. But the reality is that the originals were written in Greek and Hebrew. Now, most of us around the t- I think all of us around the table have had at least one semester of Greek. Some of us are special and had one semester of Hebrew and know that there's no vowels, but there are verbs. Um, <laughs> and so I, I think, though, that, you know, even going back to a guy that we all might know, Martin Luther, who wanted to put the Bible in the language of the common people. Right. right, and that's where it, you know. Do you have anything about that one, Mark? Um, we got something in our in our questions that we were maybe going to stew over tonight. Martin Luther um, also sort of wrestled with the canon, uh, sixteen centuries later, or maybe twelve centuries later, um, and he he looked at the the book of James, and at one point he called that an epistle of straw. Now you have to realize that Martin Luther did come around. He did look at the gospel of, or the gospel, the epistle of James. And initially, and go, eh, no, it doesn't, doesn't look like it belongs in the canon. Um, but he continued to study and look at it, and he did come around. So sometimes they throw that out there. Martin Luther, you know, said that. But then, Kyle, more to your point is, yeah, again, what Martin Luther was trying to do was bring the text into the language of the people. 
you know, we had that with the Septuagint, we had that with the Vulgate, and then we had it again with with Luther's uh, translation into German. Um, and that's really what it's all about. It's the, the Word of God, but it's intended to be for the people of God. Mm-hmm. If I asked you guys, uh, when I asked you guys what your favorite translation is, none of you said the King James Version, right? right. At one point, a lot of people would have answered that. Now, the thing is, we look at King James English and we say, ooh, that's all this highfalutin language. But in its day, that was actually the common language of the day. That's how people read and spoke. So it would have been very readable. It would have been very easy to understand. You and I are going, cool, really? Yeah. <laughs> my, my grandpa used to say, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe it's time uh, to get back to that question that I, that I threw out at the end of uh, my... Um, uh, introductory remarks. Some of this is real heady, real intellectual. Um, we talk about seminary classes, which are master's levels classes and studying and, and doctors that taught us and stuff. What does this mean for, for our listener who is just trying to walk a discipleship path? Uh, how does all this understanding of canon and translations, how does that help them? What do you think? I think for me, I, we we have all this. We have all this stuff circling around, but if we look back at the history of of the Bible, it stands the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very powerful for me. Seth was talking about it earlier. There are some historical things in Scripture that we have, we have more to look at about that history than some of the other stuff that we're teaching in history class. Um, and so, you know, that that is what is important to me in Scripture stands the test of time. Um, and Scripture, even we talked about it last week, it's alive, it's active, it goes out, and it does not return void. And so um, I, ju- I just I hold on to that fact that translations, canon, the truth of who God is and what he did for his people in the translations, it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's one I like or not. It, the, and Kyle said it, it, if it speaks gospel, if it speaks the truth of Christ— there you go. Uh, and so I, I think we don't we shouldn't get caught up in all these different translations and these arguments about what's best and why is this there and what's that. But is the truth of Christ and what he's done for his people being preached? Is that being spoken? It's the good news out there. Um, I'm looking up a Bible passage here, and I realize I've sort of accidentally maybe seem like the moderator all of a sudden, but, I, but I'm, I'm really curious about that question. Seth or Kyle, what do you think? What's, what's the benefit of this? You know, what's the takeaway that, that people can have toward their discipleship life or their mission work? Well, I, I think um, there's, there's probably two ways for me to answer it. One would be a, a, a personal, okay. and one would be as a pastor. Okay. Um, a proclaimer. Yeah, a, a proclaimer. And, and I think, let me, let me answer personally first. Personally, um, the, the, the canonization gives me um, some confidence that this is not just made up, mm-hmm. that, that there have been smart people who have been looking at this, who do this with other documents of antiquity, and they have determined that this document is reliable. 
that so I can I can trust in it. Right. It wasn't just willy nilly thrown right. together. And and the Holy Spirit obviously involved in that. Absolutely. But, but what we don't want to say is, well, the Holy Spirit did it, so it's all good. Well, yeah, you know? that, yeah, and, and 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 that's that's the 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 razor's edge that we kind of walk. Right. And then the second part, personally for me, is that I know that this is for me. Okay. That that this is the word of God, and He promises that He comes in His word. So one of the promises that we find in the pages of Scripture is that He comes to us in His word. So this is not, and this gets back to a little bit of last week. This idea that that this is this is a living, active thing that actually does work on me, mm-hmm. and, and then so, you. Yeah. And sometimes that work is it's hitting me with the law because I need it because I am screwing up. I need to see where my sin is. You know, it shows my sin, shows our sin, that SOS that maybe you've learned in, in confirmation. But then it also shows me my Savior and that it shows me how much Jesus loved me and that he died for me and that he rose again. And that is true. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about, you know, that it that it's, you know, um, it, it, it's reliable or, you know, all these kind of things. I think one of the things that, that really helps me understand is that the scriptures are falsifiable. What I mean by that is... Now you just brought up a whole other topic, but you, it's interesting. You, Go ahead. You, you can, you, you could convince me that this is not true if you would show me you know, the, the bones of Jesus. Yeah, if you show were, me the body. Show me the body and all these kind of things. If, but, but so far, nobody's been able to do any yeah. of that. So, so that's personally. And then, and then professionally as a pastor, when I take a look at this whole thing, why the discipleship thing is, I, I go back to what, what Kyle said, and, and I'm going to agree with, with Kyle on this one. What, do, what is the person who needs to hear the gospel, what is the best way for them to hear it? You know, I want them to hear it from the word itself. Sometimes that's me speaking, you know, that goes back into this manifestation that we talked about before. Um, but if I'm just going to say, hey, read this book, and they read it, and like, like you said, Kyle, I never made it past the, the somebody didn't make it past the fourth, fifth grade, and I'm going to give them the English Standard Version, mm-hmm. that, that's probably not a good thing for me to give them. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and if it's the message translation that's going to get them to understand, and also now they're going to ask questions. Well, tell me more about this Jesus. Let's continue this conversation. Um, so then it, it's still it's still contextual. And I think part of that is not just here's the word of God, you know, but like here's the word of God. We're going to walk together. We're, walk with you, right? And now. and I'm going to be active with you in this because you know the word of God is living and active. Christ was living and active. God met his people where they were. He never said, well, you figured out when you finally figured out, you can come to me. He went to those who weren't equipped and worked with them and talked with them and lived with them and spent time with them. And, you know, that's what we do when we bring the word of God to people. We can't just throw it at them and run away and hope it sticks. And he calls us to do that. That's Matthew Mm -hmm. 28. He calls us to do that. And I also like the, the, the Jesus walking on the road to, to Emmaus that, you know, he, he used the scriptures to tell him all about him. We're not the scriptures opening up before our very eyes. And and so there, there, there's a lot of relationship here. So I think, you know, professionally it's gotta be relationship. It's not that I've got an answer or I've got a book or I've got a pamphlet or I've got a, you know, I'm just going to, stand on the sidewalk with this big sign that says, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. No, I want to have a, a relationship with, with somebody. Well, and I think that, that the, for me, the beauty is the fact that in that relationship, God values enough to have a relationship with me that he's going to work through his people, his church, to put it in my language. 
right? So that's something I can understand, you know. And and what's great for me is is you know with the canon is like here here are the boundaries, right? There are some really smart guys that have been agreed over over you know hundreds of years, uh, thousands of years at this point, right? And said here are the boundaries, and they said okay, this is this is the Bible, this is the canon, right? This and here's the reason why, and and whether it's translated at a third grade level or translated at a 12th grade level or translated in Spanish or Korean or pigeon or anything else. I'm excited that the word of God can get in the hands of the people to know that it's not just for me, but it's also for you, Mm -hmm. you know, that I can get sit down with my friend and start reading the SV and he can be like, what the heck's propitiation? I've never used that word before in my life. Why would I even read that? Okay. Well, let me go pull up my new living translation and, you know, and see what it really says in like kind of plain English. And, and we can celebrate and learn from the scriptures and then through that learn from one another as we as we listen to. I mean, one of the questions I always love to ask at the beginning of a message or time together with the people, because I believe the Spirit still works in and through His Word and in and through His people is, so what jumps out at you? And, uh, and there might be something, last night we had a discussion where somebody was like, well, this word discipline, is it really discipline in the Greek or is it punished? So I had to, I got to go back to the Greek and figure it out and kind of walk them through that. Um, but it was one of those things where we get to, to look at this English word and ask questions. And then you get guys, you know, that like us that have studied some of the stuff and we get to go back or dig in or, or whatever. And, and we get to help people understand this is for you as much as it is for me as well. Mm-hmm. For me, um, why this is important is uh, I find it, I find the answer to that in, in, we talked about Luke's gospel, uh, Luke chapter one at the beginning of his gospel. He says, look, it, it, I'm starting at verse three. It seemed good for me. That's Luke saying, it seemed good for me having followed all these things for some time to write an orderly account yeah. for you so that you may have certainty yeah. concerning the things you have been taught. So y- you kind of alluded to confidence. You actually used the word confidence. Kyle, you want to make sure the people have confidence in it. That's what it's there for, is and that's why the, these people are doing the work, and, and that's why the Holy Spirit is guiding them, so that the people of faith, the people that God loves, the people that God made, can have confidence, and and certainty. And again, you you can't say that about any other quote unquote religious document. It's pretty powerful to me. Well, it brings hope. Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, we could talk all night. We've gone longer than we usually do. We yeah. should probably uh, it's been nice. ra- wrap it up. Uh, <laughs> thanks for sticking with us. If you uh, made it uh, all the way, hopefully you made it all the way to this point. Maybe it took you two two trips instead of just one trip right. uh, in the car. Thank you guys so much for being with us um, always. Um, would you do us a favor of subscribing if you haven't already? Just subscribe to the podcast. Um, send it to your friends. We appreciate you taking the time, downloading, and listen. Uh, I know we say this every week, um, but just um, throw in a comment. Um, do a little bit of a, uh, of a rating for us. That would be fantastic. If you do have a question, especially maybe a, a, about canon, about uh, translation, uh, some of those things, send us an email, theologyontap1517 at gmail.com. Or you can go to the, down to the show notes. You can join our um, Facebook group as well. So next week, uh, we're going to talk about keys to interpretation. And there's a fancy word for interpretation, and I'm going to try to avoid that, that 
so that we can say, look, here are some ways that you can interpret it as a listener in your own reading, in your own life, without having to use some of those fancy highfalutin words. So Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that next week. Getting it into uh, our language. Will our, our friend Herman Newtickle? Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it, you. Uh, uh, that is going to be good. And we might throw in some big fancy words, but we do need to uh, make sure we... Uh, define them as we go. Well, for uh, all of us here, thanks for listening. And we will see you guys on the next episode of Theology on Tap. Good night, everybody. Bye.